You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I remember sitting in front of the television a little over 25 years ago and listening to Scott and Janet Willis after they had lost six of their children in a single car accident. Scott was a pastor near Chicago and he and his wife Janet and their six youngest children were traveling to Watertown, Wisconsin to visit one of their older sons who happened to be one of my high school teachers. As they traveled, a large piece of metal fell off of a truck in front of them. They had no time to react. The piece of metal struck their gas tank. Scott and Janet Willis lost all six of the children riding in the van with them. After hearing this news and following the story, when Scott and and Janet finally spoke publicly, my family gathered together and watched the news conference. Scott began to speak, and through tears, he simply started quoting Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Just a few years ago, I thought about the Willises again when I heard when I heard about a woman named Rachel Swayze, and I I heard Rachel speak at her husband's funeral. Rachel's husband, Garrett, worked as a police officer at the University of Colorado, but he also served as a pastor. He was the father of a 10-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. Garrett was shot and killed in November of 2015 while he was protecting men and women who were being attacked by a crazed gunman. As Rachel spoke publicly after her husband's tragic death, this is part of what she said. I have been overwhelmed this week more by love than by sadness. Your kindness is an amazing gift to me. The love of my life gave his life without regret to be sure others would live. My husband lived out his belief in a God who rescues. Garrett strove in everything to point to eternal life through the Son of God, Christ Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, how does this happen? How do people who have experienced unimaginable pain and loss, how do they praise and exalt and bless God in their moments of deepest sorrow? 
I want to suggest to you this morning that the death of the Willis's six children and the death of Garrett Swayze, these horrific tragedies exposed what Scott and Janet and Rachel treasured most. Well, we must not downplay the role of the Spirit's supernatural work in the hearts of grieving believers. We, we also must not discount what suffering reveals. It reveals our true and greatest treasure. It reveals what has most profoundly captured our hearts. When you lose six children, you don't declare, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Unless Christ is your all. When your husband is gunned down in the line of duty, you don't declare, blessed be the name of the Lord. Unless Christ is your all. The same is true when you're Spouse abandons you when you receive a cancer diagnosis, when your child walks away from the faith, or when you lose your job. Brothers and sisters, no one treasures Christ by accident, but no one treasures Christ by discovering and then holding to some religious formula either. Treasuring Christ is a work of the Spirit. As a believer beholds the work and the wonder of Christ in the Word and then responds in joyful and obedient worship. If I were to tie this sermon together with all that we've already studied in the Sermon on the Mount, I would say this. The kingdom of God is all about the king. The kingdom of God is all about the king. In other words, from beginning to end, the kingdom is all about King Jesus. Think about it. Sinners enter the kingdom by faith in Christ. Life in the kingdom is marked by walking in the way of Christ. Every true citizen will treasure the king above all the benefits of the kingdom. And the consummation of the kingdom will be the unending worship and adoration of Christ the King. So brothers and sisters, we want, we want to make sure we are all about the King. This is why we need this particular text this morning. We need the instruction, the warning, the wisdom of God's word. Our text this morning offers three encouragements, three encouragements for the one who longs to treasure Christ above all. And I do believe that that's the longing of, of your heart. The encouragements are simple to remember, but they are not easy to obey. This is why we plead for the Spirit's work. Three encouragements for the one who longs to treasure Christ above all. One, guard your heart. Two, fix your eyes. 
Three, bow your knee. Guard your heart. Fix your gaze. Bow your knee. Look at the text with me, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's look at the first encouragement, guard your heart. We see this in verses 19 through 21, so let's try to break down what Jesus is saying here. If you were doing a Bible study on your own and you were reading over the text several times, one of the things you might notice quickly is the repetition of the word treasure, three times in three verses. Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching Uh, here might be most obvious if we work backwards. So let's start with verse 21. Look at it with me again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus uses the word treasure, he is not using it in any strange or obscure way. It's pretty straightforward. If you treasure something, you value it. It's that which you find exceedingly important. You might say, I treasure my spouse, or I treasure my children, or I treasure this lifelong friendship, or I treasure my church, my faith family. You might talk about treasuring a family heirloom or some other possession. In fact, friends, we all have the capacity to treasure just about anything. Uh, Whatever we attach meaning, worth, and value to, this is what we treasure. And keep in mind that what Jesus has in view is what we value most. What we value most. Now, what do we make of the connection Jesus establishes between our treasure and our heart? Our treasure and our heart. I think Paul Tripp has put forth one of the catchiest ways to both understand and remember this point, the point Jesus is making here. It's what Tripp calls the law of inescapable influence. The law of inescapable influence. And this is how he explains it. He writes, whatever rules your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your life and behavior. Whatever rules your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your life and behavior. Whatever captures your heart, 
Whatever you believe will satisfy you. Whatever you believe is most valuable, that is your treasure. And whatever your treasure is, this will exercise inescapable influence over your life and behavior. I think this is something we all know. But maybe we haven't been honest enough to admit it. So here are a few diagnostic questions that may help you discern your true treasure. These may help reveal what has captured your heart. What do you think most about? What do you think most about? What are you constantly drawn toward? What do you fear? Like really fear. What could you not live without? What could you not live without? Friends, what is your real treasure? I think the text and therefore Jesus wants us to to answer that question. Isn't it interesting that in verses 19 through 21, Jesus doesn't offer anything specific, right? Because then he could, he could offer something specific, and if that's not your treasure, you could go, whew, I'm good. No, he doesn't offer specifics. He just gives us two broad categories. So here we go. Look at verse 19 again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So two categories, earthly treasure, heavenly treasure. How does Jesus characterize earthly treasure? Well, it's stuff that rots and rusts, and it can be stolen. It covers a lot. Jesus is clear in warning us. Don't treasure this kind of stuff. Now think about it. Jesus wouldn't tell us don't do this unless there was a very real temptation for us to do it. Jesus warns us about treasuring earthly things because he knows how strong the pull is. Jesus knows how easily we are tempted to treasure the things that we can taste and touch and see. We begin to think there isn't anything else. So in his love for us, he pleads with us. Don't give your heart to earthly stuff. It won't last. Now, in contrast to earthly treasure, how does Jesus characterize heavenly treasure? Well, it doesn't rust, it doesn't decay, and it can't be taken away. In other words, heavenly treasure is far superior in every way to earthly treasure. It's a pretty simple comparison. 
In fact, if I gave you two choices, and on the one hand, there's something that's nice, but over time, it will rot and decay. But on the other hand, there is something that won't be affected by the passing of time or the changing of seasons. It will never rot or decay. Which one would you choose? This is certainly part of what Jesus is putting before us. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not prohibiting any level of enjoyment in any earthly thing. And he's not dismissing the sense of delight or awe that earthly things can give us. No, he has created a world for us to enjoy. And there is a way to enjoy the things of this earth as a means of intensifying our ultimate joy in God. Our friend Joe Rigney reminds us all of God's gifts are invitations. They display who he is and invite us to know him and delight in him. But be careful. Nothing that God created can ever take his place. We must never treat what is created as if it is ultimate. Brothers and sisters, as good as earthly things are, there is something far better. I'm not sure anyone has captured this truth more poignantly than C.S. Lewis. In 1942, Lewis penned an essay entitled The Weight of Glory. In his essay, this is what he wrote. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And if we were being honest, we would respond by saying amen. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, listen. I-, I want you to read the words of Jesus in verses 19 through 21, not so much as confrontation, but as gracious correction, right? I don't want you walking away this morning feeling beat up. Now, the Holy Spirit may bring conviction into your life, but I don't want that to be the only thing. I want the conviction to lead to a path forward, a a hopeful path. So I want you to read the words of Jesus here as gracious correction. In fact, I want you to picture a loving parent who's sitting on the edge of the bed next to their child. Child who has reached the point in life where they're, they're starting to feel the pressure to pursue earthly pleasures, and and perhaps they've even made some foolish choices. But instead of berating the child, the loving and patient parent simply and sincerely says, I want something more for you. 
I want something more for you. I want something better. This is the message of Jesus to each of us. I want something more for you. Something more than all that you can see and taste and touch. Don't settle for anything less than me. Treasure me, Jesus says. Only I can satisfy. I can't be taken away. I will never leave you or forsake you. Guard your heart. Guard your heart from being too easily pleased. This brings us to the second encouragement of our text. Encouragement number two, fix your gaze. Fix your gaze. Guard your heart. Now, fix your gaze. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In these verses, Jesus makes a very interesting point that a lot of Bible scholars see very differently. So here's what I think. Here is what I think we're supposed to take away from these two verses. First, let me explain these verses on their own, and then I'll seek to connect them to what came before. Think of these two verses as stating something that is factually and therefore obviously true. It's this. Someone who has healthy functioning eyes walks in the light. They can see where they're going. They can avoid danger and follow the path of safety. But all of this is contingent upon their ability to see. In contrast, if a person is physically blind, then their whole world is darkness. And if your whole world is darkness, then there are many dangers that await you, dangers that you can't see. So here's how this connects to what we, we just studied. Verses 19 through 21, like much of the Sermon on the Mount, emphasizes the importance of the heart. And what I think Jesus is doing here is connecting the eye and the heart. In other words, Jesus is further explaining the point that he's already made, but he's using a different metaphor. It's the law of inescapable influence stated another way. Uh, whatever rules your heart and whatever captures your gaze will exercise inescapable influence over your life and behavior. John Stott explains. The argument seems to go like this. Just as our eye affects our whole body, so our ambition, where we fix our eyes and heart, affects our whole life. Just as a seeing eye gives light to the whole body, so a noble and single-minded ambition to serve God and other people adds meaning to life and throws light on everything we do. Again, just as blindness leads to darkness, so a dishonorable and selfish ambition to store up treasures for ourselves on earth plunges us into moral darkness 
It makes us intolerant, inhuman, ruthless, and deprives life of all ultimate significance. And then Stott says this, it's all a question of vision. Friend, if you fix your gaze longingly upon earthly things, your heart will soon be consumed with them. And this won't just affect you, but all those around you as well. And think about how much of the Sermon on the Mount has been connected to how it affects other people. So Stott rightly points out the selfishness of the one who embraces earthly treasure. The treasuring of earthly things turns a man in on himself. He becomes obsessed with feeding his own appetites. But the one who stores up treasures in heaven has his hands opened in generosity toward others. Because what he can see and taste and touch is not ultimate. He can live without all of it. So brothers and sisters, as you fix your eyes on Jesus and behold the majesty of the one who humbled himself for the infinite good of others, you will find your heart swelling with gospel generosity. If not, you'll cast darkness everywhere you go and on everyone you interact with. You will become what you behold. Swimming deeply and regularly in the waters of gospel truth will make you a radically generous person. This leads to our third and final encouragement. Bow your knee, guard your heart, fix your gaze, bow your knee. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Do you see how everything we've been talking about this morning is really about worship? We've moved from treasuring to beholding to serving. In fact, you could easily rephrase the final sentence of verse 24 this way. You cannot worship God and money. You cannot give your ultimate allegiance to God and something or someone else. It just doesn't work. When push comes to shove, you will give your time, your affection, and your energy to what you love most. That's the definition of worship. Or as Jesus puts it, when push comes to shove, you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, here's what normally happens, friends. When life is going well, you think you can walk the tightrope. You convince yourself that you can give, you can give your heart to what you can taste and touch and see while still claiming that Christ is your everything. 
But then the unexpected comes. Suffering and trial enter the picture, and what happens? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. D.A. Carson warns, during crises, our allegiances get sorted out, and only one can come out on top. One master will be preferred. What or whom we want to serve most will be revealed. Just to make sure we all understand, money is just one example of everything that fits under the category of earthly treasure. So if you're thinking, I mean, I don't love money. I don't even have any money. Let me pull you back in. Right? Money is symbolic of the kinds of things that rust and decay. The kinds of things that can be lost or stolen. The kinds of things that won't last. Money doesn't last forever. But a whole slew of people, even those who profess faith in Jesus, pursue money and all that money can buy as if it can bring ultimate joy and unending satisfaction. They treat it like a functional savior, something that can provide safety and security and comfort and contentment. And before we know it, we're bowing the knee in worship. So friends, hear the warning of Jesus. You cannot, you cannot worship God and money. You can only have one ultimate treasure. Now again, you may be tempted to ask or be thinking in your mind, isn't there some kind of halfway compromise? Some deal I can work out that will allow me to balance the best of both worlds. There's got to be a way to enjoy everything this world has to offer and be totally committed to worshiping God. One author chimes in. Some people disagree with this saying of Jesus. They refuse to be confronted with such a stark and outright choice. See no necessity for it. They blandly assure us that it is perfectly possible to serve two masters simultaneously, for they manage it very nicely themselves. Several possible arrangements and adjustments appeal to them. Either they serve God on Sundays and money on weekdays, or God with their lips and money with their hearts, or God in appearance and money in reality, or God with half their being and money with the other half. Jesus would respond, you can't do that. That's not the way it works. Again, hear the word of the Lord who pleads with us as a loving shepherd. No one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What is this? Well, certainly there's an element of correction. But I think even more, this is an invitation. This is an invitation by Jesus to bow your knee before him. To worship him wholly and exclusively. To treasure him above all earthly relationships and possessions. To ascribe infinite worth and value to him because he alone deserves it. If you're asking, what is it about Jesus that warrants this kind of love and devotion? Well, the answer to that question is found in properly understanding who Jesus is and what he's done. And remember, what Jesus is pleading with you is to let go of that which does not last and to take hold of that which is best. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, wrote a book, and the title of it was simply this, Christ is Best. So there are so many texts we could go to to just, to just briefly remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I think this text captures the essence of who Jesus is and what he has done in just five verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, the preeminent one, the one who secured your eternal peace through the shedding of his own blood, this Jesus deserves your undivided allegiance. So guard your heart. Guard your heart against any competing treasure. Fix your eyes on his resplendent majesty and bow your knee in humble and heartfelt worship before him. Just a few minutes ago, I shared a brief quote by D.A. Carson. He said, during crises, our allegiances get sorted out and only one can come out on top. This is what happened to those I mentioned in my introduction, isn't it? During a time of crisis, 
During a time of crisis, the allegiances of Scott and Janet and Rachel were sorted out. And they declared in their frailty and through their tears, Christ is all. Oh, how I, I long for this to be true of me and you. I want every member of this church to treasure Christ supremely. I want you to believe in your bones that there is no one and there is nothing better than Jesus. I want you to be able to sing with unwavering conviction and overwhelming joy. I found a treasure that can't be taken. Found a well that won't run dry. O worldly pleasure, be now forsaken. Behold what love, what life is mine. Christ is all. Christ is all. And my song will ever be Christ is all. All in all. And my song will ever be Christ is all. Perhaps we could sum up this text in this way. Jesus comes before us with nail-pierced hands and says, let me be your everything. Let me be your everything. Let me be your greatest treasure. I will not fail you. I won't rust. I won't decay. My love will never grow cold for you. Come to me. I am best. Let's pray.